right. This thing's heavier than it looks. So anyway, um, so Robert is uh, spending some time resting. Um, Daniel's out, so they pulled me out from the bullpen. Um, so I'm here with you today. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And so when I got this assignment to preach this chapter, my first thought, my initial thought was that we could uh, probably just start off with maybe greeting each other with a heavenly kiss, as Paul refers to later on. But then I found out that I was assigned the first four verses to preach on generosity. Uh, And so there will be none of that today, uh, this morning. Next Sunday, RG will be back and he'll preach part two of this chapter being on guard, standing firm in the faith, being strong and courageous, and I'm sure he will lead us in how we can greet each other with a heavenly kiss. Now, I'm thankful to be here with you. My name is Chris Mixon. I'm the student pastor here at Fondren Church, and it really is an honor to be with you. So in these first four verses uh, of this chapter, Paul begins to wrap up this book, and he's, he's talking about an offering that is being collected from the church of Corinth for the church in Jerusalem. And in this short passage, we get a glimpse into giving in the early church that really points us to some principles that should guide the way that we give today in our church. If you you Google search the word retirement, the financial service industry, which is now valued at $27 trillion, provides countless calculators so we can figure out how much money that we need before we retire. And the big fear here that people have today is that they're going to outlive their financial savings. And the big question that everybody wants to know is, what's the number that I have to hit financially? Well, let me just help you answer that question this morning. Just make sure that you die before your money runs out. <laughs> No, conventional wisdom does say make sure that you have a financial plan that lasts until the day you die. And kingdom wisdom says make sure you plan for the day after you die. And when my earthly life is over and I enter into eternity, how will I, more importantly, how will God evaluate my financial life? I think when most people stand before God, most of them won't say, I sure wish I would have piled up more money, more stuff for myself. However, I do think that most people on the other side of death will say, I wish I could have experienced less financial stress, less worry, less anxiety. I wish I could have expressed more, uh, more, more giving in the same way that God uh, gives to, to us, in the same way that God is generous with all that he has. And so I want to issue an early challenge this morning for our church today. Now is the time. And this final letter of this chapter, it can feel a bit anticlimactic, especially since it follows chapter 15, which is a lengthy and beautiful chapter on the resurrection. Daniel Wagner led us through it last week, the most pivotal point in human history, the resurrection of Jesus. So anything after that can feel sort of postscript. But through these final words of Paul in this chapter, we see a community that is living in light of that event that changed the entire world, the kind of community that the church 
is supposed to be. We will see in this, in this passage a group of Christians who shared, loved, and cared across every dividing line, mending what was torn and making right what was wrong. In the New Testament, we read various points about a famine that had struck Jerusalem around this time. And to make matters worse, the Christians in that city were being persecuted in many ways, including economic ways. And the church in Jerusalem, they were suffering. They were suffering throughout the New Testament. And in Paul's letters to Corinth and Galatia and Rome and other places, he talks about this offering for the needs of men and women in Jerusalem. And so seeing this in Scripture then gives us an, an opportunity to consider the ways that we as the church today can best help those in need around us. And so in the last chapter of Paul's first letter, let's read it, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. At first glance, these, these verses feel a little like just throwaway verses. But this passage is really quite remarkable. And it reflects a new financial reality in the world in that day. You can see in verse 3 the word gift. And I was, as I was studying this text this week, I found it interesting that in the New Testament, that word that Paul uses is hatters, which means it's the Greek word for grace. And the reason that is important for us is that I want us to see this morning that this is not about taking up a mundane, obligatory offering in the church. We will see, as we've seen throughout this entire book, everywhere else, that this offering centers around the grace of God, the grace shown toward us from Christ. And the way that that grace that we receive overflows into others' lives. And when the reality that Jesus came to earth and lived a life that we couldn't and died a death that we deserve, defeating death and conquering sin, when that becomes a reality in our life and we become aware of his sacrifice in light of our sin, it changes you. And Paul views giving as a picture of grace that we give to others that comes from the overflow of grace that has been given to us. And that's the point this morning. If you are in the room today and not a Christian, we want you to know that the reason that we give to the church is not because we feel like we have to or, or because of uh, some guilt complex. Guilt doesn't motivate or promote generosity, but grace does. And we are overwhelmed with God's grace and kindness toward us, and that motivates generosity within us. The truth is, when you've experienced this grace from God, it changes you, including how you spend your money. And this morning, for whoever is genuinely interested in how to practice becoming a generous person, we will have the opportunity to step back today to look at some, uh, some principles from this passage and ask some questions along the way. So principle number one, principles of generosity from this passage, generous people believe giving is life's greatest investment strategy. 
In verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do also. We read about this, this collection in the New Testament. Paul is collecting money from various Gentile churches um, as a picture uh, support of support with predominantly Jewish, the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And he says in verse 3 that this collection is going to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. So Paul is writing to tell them that the church in Jerusalem was in need. They were starving. And this fund was coming from namely Galatia and Corinth, which were made up of a whole lot of Gentiles. And we know that Jewish people and Gentile people had been enemies for ages, so they were not exactly best friends. There was actually no love between Jews and Gentiles, and yet we see them coming together. And this community is reconciling across not only economic lines, but also across even the most hostile racial lines here. And Paul had come to believe that the ancient prophecies from Micah 2 and, and Isaiah, Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 were coming true, that Gentiles were coming to love Israel's God and a new family was being knit together. And not to jump ahead, but I believe this is relative to us. If you look at verses 10 and 11 in this chapter, Paul writes, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with brothers. I point that out because the word despise is a strong, strong language in the New Testament. It's a word that captured intense hate uh, and a word that typically described the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. So Corinth was a city where credentials and status meant everything. Degrees mattered. Occupations mattered. How much income you brought home, those things mattered. And they had started off with Paul, who basically had the equivalency of a couple of modern PhDs. He also uh, founded 14 new churches, which spawned countless daughter churches of their own. And, and, and the Corinthians still gave Paul a hard time, right? Now, Timothy wasn't half the man that Paul was. He didn't have uh, credentials or charisma. He wasn't that accomplished and he wasn't that flashy. And Paul pleads with them to receive Timothy, to do what this community is supposed to do, to reach across every dividing line, including those of competency, credentials, and status. And so this was the strategy. And this is what the, ch the church is supposed to do. A community that reaches across all dividing lines with its members living out generosity. And so we see this investment strategy promotes unity within the church. And Paul's instructions here are quite simple. He is saying, share your goods, share your money, share your things, especially in a climate of, uh, of economic inequality. When the church in Jerusalem had nothing while churches around them had everything. And throughout the New Testament, we see struggles between Jews and Gentiles, and they're trying to unite together 
in the church. And Paul emphasizes how giving to the church in Jerusalem that was struggling was one of the most clear and concrete ways that Gentiles, Gentile churches could show that they were together in one. They were united in Christ. And this makes sense. Think about your own family. I think about my family, my children. They know that I love them because of how I provide for them. I care for them. They have the essentials for life, food and shelter. We eat, you know, every day, typically. Um, Me and my wife provide for their basic needs. And these things are a clear reminder for my kids that we are in the same family because I've taken the responsibility to love them, to care for them, to nurture them. So in the same way, we show that we're in family with one another by giving to one another. And this is true with, with Fondren Church. One of the things that unites us is how we care for each other, how we give to each other within the church, how we show concern, especially when we, go, we are going through a difficult time. And there's countless stories within our church family of people stepping up and loving and caring and providing for each other. And even how we partner with churches in our state and across our country even globally, churches in India and the Dominican Republic and Mexico, we are saying to these churches, you are not alone. Every week, part of our giving here at Fondren Church, supporting individuals and ministry, nonprofits and churches, which promote unity. Principle number two, generous people don't wait until they have excess cash. Paul writes in verse two, the first part of verse two, on the first day of the week, Notice he doesn't say do it on the second day or the third day or wait until the seventh day and see if there's anything left over. He says do it on the first day. And the phrase, that phrase, the first day of the week, would strike an immediate chord in any listener in the first century. In all four Gospels, that phrase gets used. Matthew 28.1, Mark 16.1, Luke 24.1, and John 21. On the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. On the first day of the week, the angel said, he is not here. On the first day of the week, death lost its victory and the grave lost its sting. And if you are a Bible person, you might know that in Israel, it was the seventh day, the Sabbath day that was reserved for rest and worship. But in the Jesus community, that special day got shifted to the first day. And the reason is, is the first day is the resurrection day. So here's an idea. Put resurrection reality into your financial practices. We've heard of capitalism and socialism and trickle-down economics. This is resurrection economics. And it's clear that Paul's reference to the first day of the week prioritizes regular, faithful giving that is motivated from God's grace, from the grace of God in our life. The point for Paul saying on the first day of the week here is consistency. Now, it's not to say if your paycheck comes every two weeks like mine or every once for that matter that you're required biblically to, to, to space out your giving on a weekly basis. That's not the point here. There, there's a clear pattern here that the Bible expected of these Christians, and I believe there's implications for us today as well, that the grace of God compels us to give consistently, to give regularly. R.G. usually teaches to give systematically. 
And Paul is saying, don't be an impulse giver. Don't wait for a giving campaign or some big need that plays on your heartstrings and makes you throw your lunch money into the plate. That's not biblical giving. Build generosity into your budget. We don't just give to an emotional appeal that comes our way or, or uh, uh, bonus lands or, in our lap or, or particular, um, you know, on a sporadic basis. No, God's faithfulness compels us to intentionally give on a regular basis. Even the word there to put something aside in the original language the New Testament, that is an ongoing imperative, which means that there's a continuous command here from Paul to do this, to put money aside to give. Principle number three, generous people avoid excuses. And the question here that we must ask is, who should be giving? And the simple answer that Paul gives us is, all of us, each one gives. This is a communal deal all gifts are needed and everybody needs to give so this is a call for every member of the church every follower of christ to in the church to to give and we we know that there's obviously poor people in the corinthian church paul knew this he wrote an entire section to the that that addressed really rebuked the rich for separating themselves from the poor so when paul says each of you he's specifically saying all of you, not just the rich. And it makes sense because the same grace of God saves us all, saves the rich, saves the poor, whatever bracket you fall into. That, the, grace, the same grace of God saves us all, and the same grace of God then leads us to give. Giving is a test of faith and commitment for all of us, for every follower of Jesus. And the question is, do you love and trust God enough to give him your first, to give him your best? The issue here is not how much you're giving changes the bottom line financially at Fondren Church, but the place that Jesus holds in your heart. And Paul would say, every Christian should give God their first and best. So to, Paul says, each of you is to put something aside. And then he adds, as he may prosper, which, like we've mentioned, is an indication that Paul clearly uh, is aware there's different members of the church who are in different financial brackets, and they should give accordingly. So Paul answers, how much should we give? Some were poor, some were wealthy, and the Bible says each one give accordingly. And so this is not a letter written only to members of the church with a certain uh, certain wealth or certain economic status or, or financial position, this is for everyone, which leads us to the question, what about the tithe? All right, this will be a, a quick overview of the Old Testament, and then we'll get into the New Testament and try to answer this question. What about the tithe? When you look back at the Old Testament law, specifically the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, you see that the tithes actually totaled much more than 10%. It was really closer to 23% per year were given to support the people of God. And you might think, well, I thought that the tithe went 10, meant 10%. So how do you get 23%? Well, when you read Leviticus 27.30, you see that God commanded a tithe, a tenth, 10%. 
of all produce and one's land would be given to the Lord. And then according to Numbers chapter 18, verses 21 through 24, this would go to support priests and Levites that were working in the temple. But then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 23, and we see another tithe was taken to support festivals and celebrations among God's people. So that was the second tithe. And then when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 through 29, in the third year, another tithe was taken, another tenth. And that would be distributed not only to the Levites, but also to the poor, the marginalized, the widow, the fatherless, those who were in desperate need. And so when you add all this up for the people of God in the Old Testament, you actually have two tithes given each year, totaling 20% of their income, and then another tithe given on the third year. And so the total came to around 23% per year. And even the 23% wasn't the sum of their giving in the Old Testament. The Old Testament also describes first fruit offerings that were given to present the, the best before God. We see this talked about in Exodus 23, chapter 34, Leviticus 19, and Numbers 15. Leviticus 19 talks about the land that bears fruit and the initial yield of that land should be given to God. And this was basically an offering of the best and the first to be taken off the top. And so you got first, you've got first fruit offerings and then you have free will offerings that were given uh, to offer excess to cash uh, to God. And so this, this, can, this can be found in Exodus 35, 29 and Exodus 36, 3 through 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 12, 5 through 7. These are voluntary contributions above and beyond even the first fruits. So when you put all this together, you realize that the tithe, which actually totaled up to about 23%, was just part of the giving picture in the Old Testament. It was the beginning point uh, or the floor, so to speak. Um, but it wasn't the ceiling. Instead, there, there wasn't a ceiling for Old Testament giving. And so you get to the New Testament. And what do we see in the New Testament? Well, there's no place in the New Testament where we see a specific command to tithe um, a tenth uh, or more like we see in the Old Testament. Um, the closest thing we have is uh, Jesus' statements in, in Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 23 where he encourages religious leaders to tithe and more. And so while there isn't a specific prescription to how much we should be giving in the New Testament, there are plenty of impressive descriptions of what biblical generosity might look like for us today. You've got Luke 19, Zacchaeus was so grateful for God's grace in his life that he gave away over half of his possessions to the poor. Luke 21, a poor Widow gives two copper coins to the temple, which Jesus said represented the bulk of her money. Matthew 26, the forgiven woman broke an expensive alabaster flask of perfume over Jesus' feet. That was um, immeasurable value there. John 6, a little boy gives uh, to Jesus his lunch, right? Five loaves, two fish. Jesus, in turn, feeds 5,000 plus people. And throughout the book of Acts, we see people in the early church giving away possessions and selling large tracts of land to support gospel expansion 
in the church. And while there's no specific command in the New Testament to tithe, there are plenty examples that go far beyond the tithe. Even Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Luke 18, he tells, he tells one man to sell everything that he has. And then in the very next chapter, a new follower of Christ uh, comes to know Jesus. And what does he do? He sells half of his possessions. And we could keep going on and on with the examples in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 11 Uh, verses 41 through 42 Jesus is speaking to religious leaders he's actually rebuking them he's saying you're giving a tithe and you ought to do so much more and you shouldn't be limited to laws and regulations and traditions of the law but you should give out of out of the overflow of God's grace in your heart which actually leads us to give so much more And so here's the deal. If believers under the old covenant before Christ came were led to give in all the ways that we see in the Old Testament, then would it make sense for believers under the new covenant now that Christ has come to give less? I think it makes more sense for us to give more. So when you look at the New Testament, there's plenty of examples that go beyond the tithe scripture says that we are blessed to be a blessing which means that he gave us prosperity so we could share it with the poor and use it to propel god's mission within the church and it's wrong for us to sit before god and act like he's given us everything just to bless ourselves and this is different than how we think in our culture right we think well maybe i can work my way up to the tithe I can work my way up to giving to the ministry of the church and to the ministry of the needy. And I'm guilty of this same mindset. But why would we think that way? Instead, we should start seeing Old Testament covenant giving as the base, as the start of our generosity. Principle number four, generous people believe in God's faithfulness. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, he says, Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous. So who is Paul talking to here? Who is the rich? At first we might think, many of us might think that we're off the hook. Realize there's different levels of prosperity even in this room, different levels of economic status in this room. But we need to realize that if we have clean water, we have food and shelter, we have, um, we have access to, to, to education, and we have transportation and job opportunities, then relative to the rest of the world, we are the rich. I read a book um, Helping Without Hurting, economics professor Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert observe how the standard of living essentially among us is extremely uncommon in human history. In their words, they say, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at present. And speaking specifically of present-day Americans, they write, by any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk the earth. 
And we could look at statistics about how many people in the world are living in, in, in desperation. Um, the percentage of, of the world that's living without just the essentials for life, shelter, and clean water. But just to be blunt, there's people, and we know this, around the world who are starving. And the goal in sharing, hear me in this, the goal in sharing that is not to make you feel guilty, but simply to help us see that the reality, when most people think about the rich, they picture you and I. And Tony Evans says, denial makes me think I'm not rich even when I am, and denial makes me think I'm generous even when I'm not. And Paul says, on the first day of every week, resurrection day, each one of you, this is about all of us, not just about a few folks that have a lot of money. And he doesn't say, wait until something moves you. No, we need to avoid excuses. We need to even avoid the logic that I'm guilty of I, that says, I can't do everything, so I won't do anything. The grace of God doesn't compel such a passive response to those in need and to the mission of the church, but into active engagement. With, our, with, with us stewarding our resources using all that, is, that God has entrusted to us with the glory of the one who gave it to us in the first place. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we begin to close and Lauren and her team can jump back up here. This, this passage I'm going to share with you, but put before you, was on my heart all week as I was studying this text. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, I, I think this verse is a verse that God wants us to, to read this morning, um, to be challenged with this morning. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God, the Lord of hosts says, put me to the test and see that I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing for you until there is no more need. What an incredible passage. What imagery we have this morning. God is saying, Giving is not just for God's glory. It's not just for others' good, although it is for those things. But giving is for us. Giving is for our good. And he's encouraging us this morning to give generously, to give sacrificially, believing in this text in Malachi 3.10, to trust that God is faithful. And so we see in Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches about treasure in heaven, and then we remember the text we just read in 1 Timothy 6 where Paul writes, command them to do good, to be riches in good deeds, to be generous. And then he says, second part of that, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And Jesus said a long time ago it would work like this. John chapter 12, 24, Jesus illustrates the principle of life through death. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus, he gave his life away. 
but he got it back far better in the resurrection. And the same power, the same dynamic is at work financially. If you try to hoard what you have, if you try to hoard what you have, greed will wreck your soul and death will take your money. And so as your brother in Christ, I stand before you and I want to encourage us to be committed to the church and follow the examples that we have seen today. And give to the ministry of the church. Commit to following the example of 1 Corinthians 16 to give consistently, to give strategically, and as the Lord leads us to give sacrificially. If you would, pray with me. God, we praise you for the privilege of giving, the joy of giving, and we pray you would forgive us for the ways that we don't believe that this is a privilege, that we don't believe that this is a joy that leads to to blessing and goodness from your hand in our life. So teach us, God, to live generously, to give sacrificially, to give systematically, but help us to be the church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. As is our custom at Fondren Church, we take communion um, the last Sunday of each month. So ushers, if you're in the room, you make your way down. This is a time that we can remember, we can reflect, we can even renew our commitment to Christ by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We have this opportunity to think about forgiveness, to feast on his faithfulness and be reminded this morning that we are his. We were bought with a price and this is how we remember his promise. This is how we remember his forgiveness. This is how we remember his faithfulness. And so this is a call for every follower in the room this morning. We do this in remembrance of him. And so we drink this cup and we eat this bread in the anticipation that he will return as a celebration that we are saved by the blood of Christ. So ushers, if you're new, ushers will lead us individually by rows. You can grab your elements and make your way back to 